Wow, good morning. Good noon. It's wonderful to think of flying into a land that is known distinctively as a vacation capital for Americans. And as we're engaging the eternal implications of faith giving, God gets the last laugh. America's money for leisure, and God takes it and sends it forth to the nations to bless. Isn't that like God? That's pretty cool. So I'm, Sterling and I are sitting in the airport yesterday, and three flights ahead of us are heading down here, and you have this March. So I think it must be like... March is not just for North Americans, March Madness, uh, for those who love basketball, but I think it's also a time when Americans like to go play. And so I'm watching this uh, entourage of young people and some not-so-young people, all looking like they're ready for the beach. And to think that God is engaging, in that very context, a heart of people who are setting aside a week. Now, now I, I get excited when a church and her leadership, and I trust you trust their leadership. Now, from my humble vantage point, I realize some of you will have a busy week where there are duties and demands that prohibit some of you from coming. But I would suggest that from my vantage point, coming in to look at you as an assembly of believers, where you're speaking truth to one another, And your leadership comes to you and says, this week in our 52-week church calendar is crucial. You will tell me how crucial it is by your attendance this week. You will say to the leadership, this is crucial. This is part of the very heart and the DNA of God's people on this beautiful piece of real estate that if, if I was to do word associations with my friends in America, Bahamas, debauchery, play, vacation, fun, sun, beach. And if I'm to say to you, this week, word associations, what does it say to you? It could be Week as normal. Status quo. It could be you're struggling. Life's hit you pretty hard. If your economy's like ours, Americans are getting beat up with the economy, so they're thinking finding money to put some bread on the table for that week. I would hope in the midst of all of whatever we're thinking that you as a people of God are saying to one another, To the cross. To the cross. To the cross. And then from gazing upon the beauty of the cross, you begin to say to the nations. To the nations. To the nations. The flags and the fact that you have built in a metaphor of the many cultures of the world because they're here with you tonight, this today. It speaks powerfully 
of a gospel that transcends culture. And as I will make my case today, that it transcends culture because God's people go. Now, I'm, I'm blessed at the task, the triumph of the church and the challenges of the church in the modern world. And my portion dealing with the triumph of the church. In a couple of minutes, we're going to take a look first in my correspondence with Alan and lining up the week and my particular time with you. I'm going to be dealing with the glory of God, the glory of God at work in the world. And I'll make the case this morning for the glory of God at work in the world. And the triumph of God at work in the world is none other than you and me. That you and I are his earthly trophy. Announcing to a people redemption is possible. Reconciliation with an estrangement that we've had with God is now possible through Jesus. You know, that's the triumph of God. That's, and I'll make my case in just a moment. That's when God sings praises. That's when God celebrates. That's when God announces to the heavenly hosts, my sons and daughters have come home. So that's the beauty of a week like this. Now, the modern world. The modern world brings a lot of questions. And I'm going to make my case in a moment, not just for your money, although I believe where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And, Pastor, I really appreciate how you outline for us the, the eternal implications of our human giving. That was beautiful. Well done. So what I want you to do is I want you to keep that near your Bible right now. Would you pull that out for me, please? I want everyone to pull this out. And I want you to put this right next to your notes. As we walk through our passages, two texts today, be thinking about this. And you begin even now to say, Father, what is your good pleasure for me, for us as a family? And then obviously the beauty of it is when you consolidate it all, isn't it beautiful how we as an entire assembly can do far more than any one of us individually can do with our funds? Funds pooled make these projects possible. And as you're going to hear from Richard and Andrea tonight, I'm on. I wish I was young again. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little bit old, but I'm with them. And you're going to hear what they're doing. And already because they've been in the game six plus years to see reproduction taking place. To see young kids that they were working with earlier, now at a stage where they are thinking reproduction, that's phenomenal. That's how the world gets changed. It's a beautiful picture. So these kinds of investments are well worth it, not only for the eternal implications for you and your God, but for the here and the now. And to see transformation of young men and women, to announce to kids, you don't have to buy the lie, is a glorious thing. In the process of God's kingdom service. So I want you to keep that nearby. Secondly, I want you to put your heart on the table. I appreciated your comments at the end, Pastor. That's what I'm all about, too. Don't just give your money because then in some ways we human beings can feel we're exonerated from the global task. What if God puts his finger on your heart and he says, Today, son and daughter, I want you to serve the nation's go. Now, if you don't, you might say, God, I will not disguised with this phrase, I cannot, because. And then you would fill in the details. In the modern world, there are reasons in North America why the missional impulse of God is slowly being deadened. And I wonder if it's also part of this culture. It might be even something else. When I get to the point of the solution of God, I want you to put your excuse in there. If God put his finger on your heart today, this week, and he said, go, and you said, no, why? 
What would be the reason why you would say to God, when you look at Jim O'Neill and you look at the fact that this guy is up speaking before you, I came to faith as a university student. Never once in my life did I speak publicly because I was afraid of audiences. Good little Catholic boy going up through my religious system. Every time I had a speech, I was sick the day of the speech and just to be sure I was sick the day after. My mom couldn't figure out for the life of me. I was sick two days every year. It was the two days of the speech. And then all of a sudden, God brings redemption to my soul, and I can't help but speak. And you look and you say, well, I can never be like you. Listen, I am you. I was just redeemed, and God puts his finger on my heart and says, go. What do you do when he does that? I had my excuses, and I listed them for God, and he was so unimpressed. He didn't even listen to me. And so my wife and I went and we served. And I'll bet that's just like the rest of you. You're looking at yourself in the mirror one day and said, what are you doing, God? You've got to have better than this. And God says, no, this is the this is the stuff. It's the broken ones of the world world who find redemption and healing who go redeemed ones and very imperfect in the processes of God. It's a beautiful process. So, so this triumph, the beauty of this triumph is it announces to the world, broken ones redeemed bring healing. That's what it announces in the modern world. And in that modern world, you have excuses. What are they? Identify them and put them on the altar before God. And so my time with you, if you don't mind, please, we're going to go for the heart in our process together. And I would love to see God raise up sons and daughters. In this next decade, you explode as a lighthouse to the nations. So while my friends up in North America view you as a destination spot, you say, no, it's mission to the nations. And you start lining up airports, three and four and five strong, because sons and daughters, men and women from this congregation, gripped by God, see the nations, two billion, no near neighbor who knows Jesus. No near neighbor. No one like this. This beautiful worship today. This great assembly. Nothing like this. And God wants to put you on their soil. It's a beautiful thing to God in this process. So, all right, let's see what we got here. The passion of God, the world is our field. How about the next slide, please? Warning. Next slide. Doing things the old way. One of the great dangers of a church that's been doing it for 40 years is if you're not careful, you wind up becoming irrelevant. Because you did it in 1960 and in 1970. You realize, by the way, this is 2012. You know, it's, have you just woken up to the realization? Now, one of the, one of the saddest verses in all of scripture to me, and this is a warning to us. I don't think God just wants our money. Praise God for money, by the way. And praise God that you give because camps take place, kids get discipled. But I'll tell you, there's something deeper that God wants. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture says this. Now, the church at Antioch had assembled prophets and teachers. And the Spirit of God said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Do you know why that verse is so sad? God is about to launch His global efforts. And do you know what He does? He bypasses Jerusalem. And he goes to a smelly, upstart church that doesn't even look this good. 
They didn't even show up in Antioch with ties on. And God called them, not Jerusalem. And if I'm sitting at Jerusalem reading Luke's account, I'm grieving. God just passed me by. He launches his great global efforts through Antioch. And wouldn't it be precious to say in the ten years to come, as you begin to write an account of this beautiful church ten years from now, and God said, set apart for me. And you did it. And you sent forth your sons and daughters. Yea, you sent forth yourselves. Because you did it. Don't wait for the next church to do it. Don't wait for the next island. Don't wait for the next nation. You beg God and you say, God, let it be us. Let's move on. See what else we got here. Doing things without urgency. I'm going to tie together. Could I, just for our moments together... Two chapters you rarely ever hear preached together at a missions conference. Has anybody ever gone into Romans chapter 9 here, Pastor, and preached a missions message? I'm not sure. You, if you've been in the faith for a while, you might know that theologians, the guys who study the Word, go into Romans chapter 9 and some of them never come back out. <laughs> I promise we're coming back out. All right. I, I, you've been sitting for a while. Stand up, please. Let's read together Romans chapter 9. If you would, you'd you need to stand up here. I want you to look at your neighbor. I want you to look him right in the eyes and say, I'm so glad you're here today. And for those of you predisposed to a biblical holy kiss, go ahead and give him a holy kiss. <laughs> if you're not, that's okay too. A handshake is fine. All those kids up in the balcony, boy, they were puckering up. You should have seen them. I'll tell you what. And then the guy next to him said, your breath is bad. <laughs> right, I'm reading from the ESV, Romans chapter 9 and verse uh, 14. Let's pick it up there in verse 13. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated hard words. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomsoever he wills, and he hardens whomsoever he wills. May the Lord add his blessings upon the reading of his word. You may sit. And Father, as I engage for these moments this portion of Scripture and the implications in the modern world and how you triumph, Father, we're, we're going to be a bit surprised. But as we are, Father, open up our hearts to be sensitive to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's where we're going to go today. I want to take a look at the passion of God. So when you think of the glory of God at work in the world, when you think of the triumph of God in the modern world, I want to take a look at God's passion for just a couple of moments. But then I want to take a look at the problem we humans have with God. If Paul identifies it here, maybe it's, maybe it's stated in a, in, a, in a different way, maybe in your heart or in our culture. But, but many human beings, do you realize that? Many human beings have a problem with God. 
And God's a peace pretty big. You know, so let's put it on the table and then let's look at the solution, how Paul wrestles through this issue of the problems that we do have with, with this great God of ours. So let's take a look together at the passion of God. Now, what's interesting, when you think about this passion and the passion of God, uh, God answers the question of the injustice before him through two voices. The first voice, it is spoken through Moses, and the second voice, it is spoken from Scripture through the life of Pharaoh. So then why? Why does God... How about the... Yeah, we got it there. Good. God speaks through Moses. And what's fascinating is when God answers the question of his injustice, what he announces through Moses and to us human beings is this. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So Moses, he says, God, I really want to see you. I mean, that's a pretty bold thing to ask. God says, okay, I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to pass by. You're only going to see my back. And when God passes by, guess here's what God does. God preaches to Moses. God proclaims to Moses. And you know what God says to Moses about himself? He says, I... I am the Lord God, full of compassion and mercy. Isn't it interesting that the very first attribute God uses to describe himself to human beings is he announces, I'm not holy, I'm not full of love. He doesn't even start there. He says, I'm full of compassion. That's why Jonah was so ticked at God. He went back to Exodus 33 and 34, and he says, you're going to go to Nineveh. I knew you were full of compassion. That's why he pulled back on God. He wouldn't go. Nineveh deserves judgment, not compassion. And guess what Dr. Luke does? Do you know what the primary attribute Dr. Luke does in the book of Luke on Jesus? Over and over and over again, he announces to us human beings that Jesus is compassionate. That is the primary attribute that God wants to announce to us when we think about his injustice. What the passion of God is, he's full of compassion. He's compassionate toward human beings. We deserve judgment and he doesn't give it to us. He, he offers compassion to us. So can you see it now? Can you see the son finally making his way home? He has shamed his father. In Near Eastern culture of the day, to have taken the inheritance and to have walked away from, waken, uh, walk away from his father brought great shame and embarrassment and disgrace to the father in the community. This would have been headline news for years. It would have been gossiped and gossiped and gossiped. Dad can't control his son. Son embarrasses dad. Shame on them. And yet, day by day, dad goes to the edge of his property, waiting for his son to come home. And his son is finally at the place where he's not only feeding pigs food, but the food looked good. Hint, if you're eating pigs food, go home. He starts to make his way home. He begins his rehearsal. Dad. I was wrong, Dad. I sinned. Dad, it was bad. Dad, I'm so sorry. And he gets to his father, and his father rushes day by day to the edge of the property. He sees his boy coming. He, he puts in play a party. And he blesses his boy. 
And he announces to everyone, my boy has come home. My boy has come home. He was lost and now he's found. Can you see God now? You come home. He goes to the edge of the property. He's waiting for you. You find Jesus. And God announces to the heavenly host, my boy has come home. My boy has come home. That's God. That's the image that we need to lock into our minds and our hearts when we're, when we're prone to want to rebuke God for being God. When He doesn't measure up to our human expectations. When we find fault in God, remind yourself He's full of compassion. He's at the edge of the property and He was waiting for you. And when you came home, He cried. And He celebrated to the heavenly hosts, My boy has come home. Wraps His arms around His boy and He is not going to let him go. My boy has come home. That's the compassionate giving God. Then the second element is through the Scriptures. Look what it says. Through Pharaoh's life. Pharaoh the obstinate one. Pharaoh actually believed his news clippings. Pharaoh is God. Boy, please, don't believe your own clippings. And so the great cosmic battle of the ages took place. Yahweh, the great Yahweh, the great I am. I am in my mind means the ever-present tense God. Wherever God is, wherever eternity is, at any given moment, God is always there. That's God. That's our God. And Pharaoh thought he was God. And so this great battle took place. And then between the sixth and the seventh plague, the issue surfaces here. So then it depends not on human effort, verse 16, will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, chapter 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Now, can I put a subplot in there? Wouldn't it have been cool if Pharaoh was just simply have repented? Wouldn't it have been cool if he would have said, you know, Yahweh, I really actually think you're God and I'm not. But it's pretty hard for a human who has grown up thinking he's God to relinquish his rights to Godhood and to give it to the true and the living God. But he doesn't. And so God's going to use this. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this morning, what's the passion of God? That his name might be high and lifted up and that he might be made famous throughout all the earth. That's the passion of God. That's why we send forth ourselves and our sons and daughters so that the name of Jesus is planted amongst the people who know not our Lord and amongst that people he is made famous. When God woke up this morning with us, he was, he was passionate about the peoples of the world for whom his name is not yet made known. And isn't it interesting that God would use someone like Pharaoh to draw that to our attention? Next slide, please. Isn't this cool? Israel, the, 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 the Hebrew peoples, are finally going to be making their way toward the promised land. And Rahab gets it. A prostitute becomes an amazing theologian. Kings, they didn't get it. Uh, miracle, miracle, miracle. Not just locally here, not just locally here. Pharaoh gets knocked out of kinghood and godhood. Yahweh does it. Hint, hint. Copy, print. He might be God. They didn't get it. Right? ABC News just missed it. CNN just... If you're watching any of our newsreels, they miss it. 
Rahab gets it. She says, for the Lord your God is God. That was the point. Isn't it beautiful? God was so pleased to take a prostitute to tell us. She got it. Isn't that the point of it all? Maybe when we think about the triumph of God, when we think about the glory of God, when we think about the passion of God, the song of Isaiah, it's a beautiful phrase. Isaiah 26, 8, Lord, your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. Could that be the cry of us this week? Father, your name and your renown in the midst of the demands and the duties. As soon as this service is over and you start giving your attention to the week, Force into it. Force into the weak. Force into the demands and the duties. And announce to those demands and the duties, no, no, there's something superior to my needs. It is your glory, God. Your name and your renown are the desire of my heart. Next slide, please. Ah, But we struggle a little bit too, don't we? That uh, just lovely little phrase, God, that's not fair. Never been there. I mean, that's what's happening here in chapter 9. Jacob, Esau, him I loved, him I didn't. I don't think he's dealing with affection, but he's dealing with choice. But it just kind of sounds like God's not fair. You ever been there? Uh, Sterling and I were privileged to serve in Asia for 13 years. Our kids were born there. Our third, Shane, uh, whenever I would be out on a trip, uh, a speaking tour, or what have you there, I'd come home, and one particular time I promised Shane that I would be home, and we were going to go out together, and I had made a plan to be with Shane. And I couldn't get home in time, and I missed a whole day. And I get home the next day, and my son meets me right in our driveway, Shane. He's age five at the time, and he's crying. It's evident he's visibly upset. And he looks at his dad. And he said, Dad, Dad, when you left, you promised that we would be doing this yesterday. You broke your promise. And then he looked at me and he said this. He said, Dad, that's not. You ever been there? Fair. I looked at him. And I said, son, where did you get the fairness doctrine from? I didn't teach it to you. And then it occurred to me, he got it from his mother. I knew it. But it's, it's part of our human, humanness. It's part of our DNA, isn't it? When, when God doesn't quite measure up, we, we point our human bony fingers up in his face and we announce to him, God, that's not fair. Or, stated more contemporary for our purposes for this week, God moves in on your heart and he speaks to you and you announce to God, that's off limits. It's the sub-corollary to the plot, that's not fair. Here am I, Lord, send Richard. And so he sends someone else. Now, how does Paul answer this? 
Now, there are four questions asked and answered in chapter 9. We took a look at, at some components as we're learning a little bit about God, his passion. We take a look. How about the, the problem we have with God? How about the next slide, please? Now, let's take a look at the solution. Would you jump with me over to chapter 10? Let's pick it up in verse 12, okay? Chapter 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who will call him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Paul states the dilemma. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Excuse me, for Isaiah says, verse 16, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. 17, so then faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Three simple truths from this particular passage. This is crucial for us as followers of Jesus. It takes truth to be saved. You realize the implications of that for mission? Do you actually believe that? That the peoples of the world cannot get saved without truth. Second bullet point. It is impossible for man to be saved without truth. And then the third. It is a universal, global. Isn't that beautiful? Paul announces for whosoever. You can go to any people group of the world, any culture, any nation, any city, and rightly announce to them, you call, I promise you on the authority of Jesus, you can be saved. But here's the catch. It's exclusive. And I think that's part of what rubs us raw. We don't like this exclusiveness of Jesus. Are you a closet universalist? Believing that one day all will be saved. Or maybe as God moves into your heart, he puts his finger on you and says, I want you to serve there. You say, no, 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 send someone else. And in your heart, you're battling. Paul works here in a regression. Most of the time, he likes to go and help us. He works from point A to B to C to D. Nice, simple Logical thinking, nice linear thought, goes here, 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 and here. This time, Paul re- works in reverse order. And he's going to start with the conclusion, point five. Point five in the order is simply this. Verse 13, if you call on the name of the Lord, you're saved. You don't go into the world and absolve anyone's sins on their behalf. You simply announce to them on the promises of the Lord Jesus, you can be saved. You call, you're saved. It's beautiful truth. That's the conclusion to the matter. But point four, Paul now states a dilemma for us. Point four in this regression, how can they call then in whom they have not believed? So point four in the regression, you call, you're saved. But before you call to be saved, you must be able to believe. You believe, call, you're saved. Point three in this regression, how can they believe in whom they have not heard? So people must hear so that they can believe, call, they are, say it with me, saved. People must hear. 
They must hear the gospel in their own heart language. We do not put a sign out to the billions of the world and say, if you want to get saved, learn our language. If you want to get saved, learn our culture. If you want to get saved, fly into Nassau. We don't do that, do we? God says people must hear. And this is one of the most amazing things for us as missionaries. You know, can I state it this way? One of the most unique tasks of a missionary is to go into all the world and make an idiot of themselves. Do you know how challenging it is as an adult to become a child to learn somebody else's language? And how difficult that can be? We, we want to, to behold. They don't aspirate in their language, Cebuano. They're P's, T's, D's, and K's. Well, that's pretty tough for a Philadelphia tongue. They don't aspirate. We aspirate everything. I didn't even know what aspirate was until I got there. I thought it was a cousin to an aspirin. And here we are learning this language, and I would say, Kitang Tanan. And all these little kitties listening in on me on my language studies would get in behind me and they'd go, Ki Tang Tanan, Ki Tang Tanan. And I was humiliated. Kids, knock it off. If you don't stop, I won't stay and you won't hear about Jesus. Guess where you're going? They were so unimpressed. Coming in behind me. Key. See, I was not, I was not cutting off the air on my words. And it sounded funny to their ears. And so they were just enjoying the moment with me. I couldn't appreciate it at the time. It should sound like this. Kitang tanan. Si Christu ang manluluas para tanang tao dini sa kalibutan. Do you know how long it took me to get that to where I was not aspirating? Now, can I ask you just for 30 seconds? This depends on how healthy of a self-esteem you have. Can I ask you just for 30 seconds to be a missionary? Okay. Just give, shake, shake your head. Tell me you're still awake. All right. 30 seconds, please. Wife, if your hubby doesn't do it, you have my permission. Backhand. Wake him up. All right. Here's what I want you to do. I want everyone here to say the word Paul. Would you do that for me? Say Paul. Everyone, say it again. Paul. Okay? I want you to put your hand in front of your mouth, and I want you to say Paul. One more time. Paul. Do you feel air? Now, if you don't, take your pulse. Are you with us? <laughs> All right? Now, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to say Paul, but this, t- this time don't aspirate the P. Don't put air to P. Okay? Now say Paul, but this time without the air. Do it. Say Paul without the air. Do it again. You look like fish. <laughs> See, that's what missionaries do. We, we go in to learn somebody else's language, and it just feels funny, and I'm embarrassed, and I don't know if I can break through. But but what God says, no, that's what has to take place. My people have got to so speak the language so that those people can hear, so that they might believe so that they might call and be saved. That, but that's point three. Paul says, notice in point two, how can they hear unless someone preaches? And preaching here is present tense. It, it speaks of continual communication of truth in their heart language so that they might hear in their heart language, believe, call and be Saved. But see, that's not the end of the matter. Paul says point one in this regression is this. How can they preach 
present tense, unless they are sent passive tense. The preaching and the sending are not the same ones. The sent has in mind the people of God, assembling themselves, hearing the call of God, seeing the great need, with the burden and the call, you send forth your own. And what do they do when they go there? What you are doing here, preaching the gospel to all of my countrymen who fly into your beautiful homeland, thinking it's vacation capital of the world. But here is an amazing lighthouse. Preaching are sent. Community sends forth her own, her sons and daughters, and they go there and they preach. What's on your heart for the next ten years of this church? What's the cry of your heart? What's the passion of your heart? When you think of this beautiful assembly and these, this amazing group of men and women, boys and girls, what would you say, God, would you explode in our midst and send forth sons and daughters and men and women to the two billion who have no near neighbor? And oh, by the way, God, if nobody stands up to go, I'm willing. So Dennis, his beautiful wife, Nancy, are assigned by God to the Duna peoples. They go to the Duna people. And in amongst the Duna people, they, they build a hut in the middle of multiple villages. As they're building this hut, the people are watching Dennis and Nancy, and they're shocked. Because in the middle of their hut, they are building a platform. In this particular culture, they didn't have platforms in the middle of homes. A platform in their culture is a bed. And in their culture, the men at night do not sleep with the women. True story, guys. Because the men are afraid of their wives. Here's why. They believe that the women have an evil spirit in them. And that if they sleep with them at night, the evil spirit will rise up from within the woman and slay the man. They don't spend time together at night, only in the daytime. And they watch Dennis and Nancy go into the hut when it's completed on this platform. And, and the multiple villages all come and wait around the hut the entire night waiting for the murder. And they are shocked as they come out in the morning. And Dennis stands at the door and sings, I'm alive, I'm alive, heaven's gates are... People can't believe it. In the course of the months, learning the language, they build up enough trust and friendship with the Duna peoples where three men work with Dennis on not only the language, but begin translating the scriptures. And they begin in Genesis chapter 1. And they get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in translating the book of Genesis. And they're shocked to discover man, woman, together. And they get to chapter 2, verse 8, and they're doubly shocked. They cannot believe they discover in what they call God's carvings, God's plan for the family. It is totally different from all of the fear that they have believed all of their years. 
And for the next three months, the village, multiple villages have this intense conversation, and Dennis has to just sit and wait. He has no idea what's going on. They began this conversation, understanding in God's carvings the purpose and the intent of the husband and the wife. And Dennis says, even before they had come to faith, transformation was taking place just by contact with the carvings of God. And the, at night, the men started coming in and staying at night in their own homes with their wives. And then the men finally come back to Dennis, and they begin the process of translating the rest of the book of Genesis. And they begin, and then one of the men asks Dennis, and says, Dennis, Dennis, does, does, did, did your father have God's carvings? And Dennis says, yes. My, my father had God's carvings. Did your father's father have God's carvings? And Dennis says, yes, my father's father had God's carvings. Quiet. Did your father's father's father have God's carvings? Yes, my father's father's father had God's carvings. Silence. They didn't want to shame Dennis, but they wanted to ask the next question. And the next question is the right one. This is the question that the majority of the world asks of God, not like we here in the West, where we kind of rebuke God because they haven't heard. Father, what about those people who haven't heard? They ask, if you've had God's carvings from the father to your grandfather to your great-grandfather, the question left unasked, but was so uncomfortable to Dennis, was this. Then what took you so long in getting to us? You see, that's the question they ask. You see the answer, Paul says, to the dilemma of the justice of God? What about those who have never heard? God says, don't blame me, sons and daughters, go. I have given you the truth. Now go forth. This is the passion of God. This is the compassion of God. This is the glory of God. This is the church triumphant. You know what the church triumphant is? (laughs) When sons and daughters... Of the, of the king. They're children of the king, King Jesus. They simply say yes. That's, that's the triumph. And it's a beautiful thing. You've already had some beautiful metaphors right before your eyes. Are you just going to rest on yesterday's laurels? In the beauty of their great advance? You can't. The needs are too great. And we look up at God and we say, God, that's not fair. And they say, you have the truth. What's taking you so long? So why don't we do this? Why don't you at least say, God, today I'm willing. You know, God may want you here, and that's fine. I think the reason why God has you here is because you're on assignment by the master here. But if you should be there, then you need to go there. Then get there. God wants you in Indonesia, go. Right? But in between here and there is a willing heart. When you, when you look at the metaphors God gives us right here, it is nothing more than a very inadequate group of followers of Jesus who have said yes. And somewhere in the process of time, God gives them enough skill to help them make a difference there. 
And when they leave there and they come back here, do you know what the dear ones there say? Tell the saints, thank you for sending you. That's what happens. And it's a beautiful thing. But there's a couple of billion yet. A lot of Duna peoples who are really distorted in their worldview. And we can make a difference. What do you think, moms and dads? What do you think, sons and daughters of the king? I don't know you. So going into an invitation is very awkward for me. I'm trying to discern the Lord, but could I, since you allowed me to embarrass you a minute ago, may I embarrass you one more time? With every head up and every eye opened, don't, don't bow your heads, don't close your eyes. Uh, tonight, I, I will make a case for praying intentionally for our sons and daughters for the next 30 days. Okay, I'll make the case tonight as we think about the church triumphant. When I think about the church triumphant, it is sons and daughters marching. <laughs> but I wonder if this morning we could just simply say this, God, I'm willing. If you want me there, I'm willing. You know how inadequate I am, God, and you know how much I failed, and and you know you know me, God, right? Because you're are, are the excuses revving up right now, real quick. <laughs> Plug them back into the text and say, no, 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 God. How shall they hear except someone preach? How shall they preach unless they are sent? God, I'm willing to be a sent one. I'll pray in a moment, then we'll turn it over for a song and an offering. But I think it would be wise if we just for a moment, we're family. We're, we're just family, right? We're, we're kin. This is family. And I wonder if maybe you'd be willing to say, just with God, and in light of the passage and this week and this amazing theme, you're willing to say, God, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing, God. I'm willing to be there. That's all. By the way, that's all it was with Jim and Sterling. It was just, I'm a willingness. Now, I thought... For many months, by the way, I, uh, true confessions pastor, I really battled. New York City became pretty comfortable to me <laughs> after thinking about God wanting to send me to Asia. Oh, God, I'll take 15 million. Became my security blanket. And God said, no, I love them, Jim, but I want you there. And it took me months. And then we went. How about you? With every head up, every eye opened. You and God, you just say, hey, you know, God, I'm willing. Just stand and say, God, I'm willing. Every head up, every eye open. Just look around. That way, if somebody stands, you can look at them. I mean, you know what happens when you close your eyes, don't they, Pastor? When you have an invitation, you close your eyes. Everybody peeks anyway. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. You just, I'm a peeker. You know, I peek. That's good. And then the rest of you... Be in prayer for them. Say, okay, God's moving here. And he's saying, there's a willingness at least. This is beautiful. Amen. Our brother here was called to the nations at age 50. That's cool. Now he's Father Abraham. That's what God does. You don't have to be just five to be called to the nations. You're a beautiful metaphor to us, brother. This is the stuff of God. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful in his sight. 
I've gone a little bit over. You've been very kind. I promise to stay on target tonight. Stay up, sister. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you right now. And then for the rest of us, let's be in prayer for them. And then let's ask God for an explosion over the next ten years or whatever until the Lord returns. May this church be this descending hotbox, not only of your dollars, but of your hearts and your sons and daughters. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, these, your sons and daughters who are standing, and if you would just put your hand on them just to affirm a willingness, it's just a beautiful thing, God. How, how beautiful it is to see the feet of those who bring glad tidings. That's, that's what's beautiful in your eyes, God. Father, we here in the West, we have a completely different value of beauty. But that's yours. And you see sons and daughters here standing up before you with a willingness. And I pray that you would move in in great power and just do some important things. The church triumphant is sons and daughters of King Jesus going forth, being sent by sons and daughters to proclaim where Jesus is not. Thank you for these dear ones, Father, standing now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, saints. God bless you.